Welcome to FileMaker Talk. This is Matt Navarre. With Matt Petrowski, and of course, what we're talking about is FileMaker. FileMaker. Man, it's been a long time since we've talked. Too long. It has been a long... What'd you do? Like three or four podcasts at uh, DevCon and yeah. in between? And, and then one since then, I think. But one a I've month is not enough. Oh, no, no, no. I wish we would talk a lot more. I've had my head down, either that or my head under a rock, just trying to work on this, getting this product out, this theme studio product. Which is going to be cool. Should be. Worthy Should upgrade. be. Hopefully people will like it. Lots of icon gooiness. <laughs> gooiness spelled in a weird way. <laughs> <laughs> that, what would that that'd be? G-U-I-N-E-S-S. That's Guinness. That's, that's it a is nice Guinness, beer. but it's also it's also gooiness if you're combining the acronym. <laughs> Maybe that's why geeks like Guinness so much because it's a uh, because of the GUI component. So uh, what's in the news, Doctor Petrovsky? News. Well, I've got my Google Reader open here, and I'll go through some of the items that I found interesting. Um, a popular plugin, the Troy File plugin, that was updated. I don't use it personally, but if I was going to do dialogues, I'd probably, it'd be either that or the two for you. Um, Daycon's upgraded a couple of their plugins. Um, we had a couple user group meetings. Um, Dial- yeah. CNS Barcode was a big one. Oh, yeah. Uh, the the, the uh, app for iPhone yep. for doing barcoding and sending to FileMaker using its new URL scheme. Very cool. Or sending FileMaker Go, I should clarify. Right. So uh, for those that don't know that it, that was released in Go, there's support for a special URL format, and that will then allow you to open a FileMaker file on uh, mobile, either iPad or iPhone, and then open a specific database, run a specific script, and even transfer in parameters. And so this is an application that's taking advantage of that, allowing you to scan barcodes, all kinds of different barcodes, even generate them internally, and then uh, send that all over to your FileMaker database on a on the mobile device. So that's CNS Barcode. Um, also released was the Clip Manager 4 from uh, MyFM Butler. Now, I had a copy of Clip Manager 3, and I just found that I didn't, I personally didn't use it too much primarily because I keep all of my own custom functions and everything in just a default database that I have open, and I copy from that, and I keep my masters in text files, mm-hmm. and I I version control them using Git. But I finally spent enough time with um, Clip Manager 4, and I found that it for a lot of different things... It's really useful. I mean, I'm creating this Theme Studio product, but one of the things, the like Hansa Kudelka, he released a little um, progress bar, which uses, uses conditional formatting mm-hmm. in order to update for iPads and iPhones because it you can't do plugins right. for progress bars. So this is a really great little thing, but it was fixed into his colors, the colors he had chosen. Of course, resizing would be a hassle, but I wanted a different color bar. Well, I used Clip Manager in order to change the colors, because in Clip Manager 4, when you copy the layout clip to into Clip Manager, 
it has a find and replace, and you can use either regular expressions or just a general find and replace. Well, it also lists all of the individual colors that are used in that particular layout snippet. So what it does is it takes the stuff that you you copy from FileMaker, any type of an object, and it takes the raw XML, which is that object, and allows you to uh, Manipi- manipulate, manipulate it, it and then paste it back with the changes. Correct. So it was very easy to take his version of the uh, of a progress bar, and then I had a blue version, a green version, an orange version, as, as many different versions as I wanted very quickly by just being able to do a find and replace of the hex color. Sweet. So that was a that one was a really big one for me, and then the third one that has gotten me really sort of motivated was something that was sort of hidden. I mean, those of us on the Mac side of development, I mean, I that's you know ninety ninety five percent for me. I I don't know how much for you. Um, yeah, pretty much. I, I'm I'm definitely in the crowd that that develops on a Mac and deploys on the PC. I mean, I'll get in the uh, on the PC when I you know, need to test and troubleshoot and things like that. There's been this plugin over on the PC side that 2M Power has had called Developer Assistant. Now, in every other programming environment, and predominantly for me that's been AppleScript, Shell Scripting, PHP, and now Java, you have find and replace and you can search in an IDE across multiple files, you know, looking for anything. You can't do that in FileMaker. Once you've chosen to use a particular variable name, and if you're using that variable across more than you know, two or three scripts, mm-hmm. that's a pain in the ass to find because the typical process is you need to go up to the developer report, export the developer report, open it in a web browser. Chrome happens to be the fastest. Or yeah. Or base elements if you're using a tool like that. Mm-hmm. And then use the browser's search capability. A base elements being the one and inspector being the two that you pay for, right. the browser being free and cheap. <laughs> and I think there's other ones coming too. I think 360 Works is working on one. Um, oh, oh, don't even get me started on that. Dream. <laughs> Dream. But check out this. The, this 2 Empower developer assistant, he released it for the Macintosh. It's from, uh, I think, Draco Computing or uh, Draco Ventions is right. the name of the company. It's just a simple little palette. It pops up with a search window. It's floating there. Anytime you're using FileMaker, it gets the context based on where you're at. Now, I didn't, I didn't check whether... This, I think it did work in FileMaker 10 because we made the change from a Carbon app to a Cocoa app mm-hmm. in FileMaker 11 now. And basically, if you're in the script window and then you select in this little search box, it will search across all of the scripts of whatever you put in. So if you're looking for this variable, it just jams through all the scripts, finds the scripts, opens the window. You want to go to the next, you click next, and it just jams through all the rest of the scripts, finding every occurrence of whatever you put. Field name, variable name, uh, table occurrence references, you name it. That's and damn it works cool. in the it, it does what FileMaker should do yep. in the table view and the field view, allow you to filter out. So it makes it easy for you to find things. So it's it is nice. I started using it, and after two or three times, it's got a thirty day trial. That was it. I just I just kept it on in my extensions because usually I download a plugin, right. test it out, and then if I don't use it, I dump it. And but this was really nice. So props to uh, Draco Ventions. And if you're interested in that, there was a news release, and uh, go over to their website. Let's see, Draco their Ventures. website comes com. up. 
Well, I'm bumping to FM Pro Org here, where the news is, but it's uh, Draco Ventions, D-R-A-C-O-V-E-N-T-I-O-N-S dot com. And uh, give it a try if you're on a Mac. He's had it on the Windows, but I just That's got used to the 2.2 found it on beta. Yes, it is. A, okay. It's a it's a beta version, so uh, you have to find where that is on the page. But fmpro.org has the news item, and then that'll take you to the Draco Ventions website. And uh, that's pretty much what we've got for the news. Cool. Hey, do you have anything that's uh, not FileMaker or something that is FileMaker cool? <laughs> let's uh, let's start with FileMaker cool. There's something I've been working on recently. Um, which isn't really rocket science, but uh, or rocket surgery, I guess we say now. Uh, and that is uh, the FileMaker charts, you know, the graph function. Um, if, you have, if you're trying to make a graph and you need to graph a point, but the value for that point is zero because there's no records that match, um, you, you, there's no easy way in the graph to leave that placeholder spot, you know, the blank bar. So, like, if you're, if you're looking for sales by day and you want... If, and you normally are open seven days a week, but one weekend you were closed, and you don't want Monday and, and um, Friday to bump up against each other in the graph, you actually want a blank hole for Saturday and Sunday. Okay, so a spacer, yeah. Um, or if it's just uh, you know any other kind of thing like that where you're, you're looking at data where there might not be any values. That's, there's kind of no easy way to do that if you're just graphing a found set of records. So... Uh, I have a little demo file that um, that I built. And this is something we're we're using for um, for the public health thing in Oregon. That basically what it does is it, it uses another function that's not uh, maybe it's not undocumented, but it's another function in the graph that graphs from a uh, global variable instead of from data in your current layout. And, and you, it injects that. Yeah, so you basically all the data? Yeah, you would send two return separated lists. One of them would be the name of the value. So that would be the the in my sales example, that would be like the um the day of the week or the day of the month. You know, you could put Monday the first, Tuesday the second, Wednesday the third. And then the other value would be the number, which would be the the sales that we were trying to graph. Okay. And those would be um and then when you look at the graph, those two basic things on that screen where you say what's the um, values and and what are the uh, labels? You just put those variables there, and then you have a script that just loops through. I guess that's the tricky part. Is it to populate that? It, it's a simple looping script that um, that starts at the first day of the period that you choose, does a find to find how many um, records match that, how many records, how many sales were made that day. So it goes to the Friday. And it says, oh, we found 17 sales that Friday. And it just puts, uh, populates a line that says 17. And then it says, okay, now go to the next day, Saturday. How many sales did you have? Zero. So it makes a line Saturday, z- zero. Sunday, zero. Monday, seven. Tuesday, 15, whatever. And then so you just get these two parallel return separated lists, and, when, and then your graph is done. So the script is all of 10 lines long. Nice. I'd have to see it in order to wrap my head around it. I honestly have not spent as much time with graphing, just out of lack of personal need, as I should. But I know somebody who has spent a good amount of time with graphing. It was, who's, um, who's that? Lee Lucart. Oh, yeah. Over, over at Savvy Data, yes. S-A-V-V-Y data.com. He has a, a graphing solution for the iPad. 
or hit something that he's done where basically you're going to have to use JavaScript ultimately. Hmm. I wonder if uh, I've been using a lot of the Google charts. I wonder if those work on iPad where you can use a web viewer. Yeah, I mean, if anything that's in the web viewer is typically using JavaScript. In fact, I got an email recently from uh, Fusion Charts, which was a Flash-based uh, charting plugin that you could use on the desktop side of FileMaker, but they said, oh, Flash, we now have Flash charting on the iPad. Well, that's dumb. They don't have Flash because the iPad doesn't support <laughs> Flash. Right. Dumb marketing, but um, you look in their in all their documentation. They say that they're using this uh, JavaScript library called High Charts. So it's h i g h charts dot com. So if you go to that, it, you can see it's got some really awesome charting using JavaScript, and you can, um, of course, put that oh, into yeah. a web viewer, load the JavaScript in uh, from a global field, and do do your charting right within a web viewer, and that'll work on iPad, iPhone, and desktop. Those are nice. They're animated. So oh, the, the, the free Google charts that you get, the Google chart API, um, those are, are not animated. Actually, there's some that are. But by and large, all it really is is a get or a post URL. So you just simply call a URL from the web viewer. No Correct. JavaScript at all. And it so returns you're a ping. File and you're limited you. in terms of uh, your data. Uh, are you? you well, you can only pass only pass so much within a post or a get yeah, within, that's the, true. within the URL. So, yeah, so the number of characters is is like uh, what I don't know, five twelve or something, ten twenty four. Right, and it's going to be great for basic charting. But as far as I'm aware, using Google's charts, you can't necessarily deploy a commercial solution. Whereas with this high charts, you can you can actually po- uh, purchase a license for commercial distribution. Uh, I don't know if that's true. I, I didn't see any limits on the Google one, but I haven't really. Yeah, and that maybe that was a while ago that I actually looked at that with regards to being able to commercially release something that y- uses the charting. I don't know. You definitely have to check into that. Is Let's that see. at charts.google.com? Here's the usage policy. There's no limit to the number of calls per day you can make to the Google Chart API. However, we reserve the right to block any use that we regard as abusive. If you think your service will use more than 250,000 per day, please let us know. That's all there is for the usage policy. It doesn't say anything about commercial versus non-commercial? Nope. Not on that huh. page. There may be something else, but... Well, there I've, been, go. I've been going through a lot of the different charts. They've got you know pies and bars and stacked bars and bar-line combination and this really cool one called Google-O-Meter. Um, which is sort of like, it's kind of hard to describe, you just need, need to look at it. But it's a really good way to give a visual piece of information to a single number. Um, uh, I'm using it for, for example, if a if a record is 63% filled out versus 24% filled out, I can show this little number that shows a little arrow pointing, kind of like a fuel gauge is really what it is. Is it full or is it empty or how much in between? Um, and it, that's not like ohm, like OHM meter? Uh, no, just Google O meter, like Jack O lantern. Oh, okay. Google O meter. I'm googling it. There it is, right there. Google Charts tools. Yeah. And the Man. other benefit about that uh, method that I described about looping through your data and doing finds also is great because it applies perfectly to this. Because of course, to to build a URL, you actually have to have a return separated list or individual variables for your data. So I usually just build a little let function 
that contains the Google Chart API line and then has the, the values for what I'm trying to graph. Uh, and it's incredibly fast. I mean, you can flip record to record to record and it draws the chart instantly fast. And you can size it really small so you can have like a, you know, like a 100 pixel by 100 pixel chart, um, which is not really well supported by using FileMaker's built-in charts. So FileMaker charts, the borders are kind of what they are, and you don't really get to mess with them too much. So I don't know. I think they're both kind of good. But Well, it's nice to know all of the different things that you have available. I mean, for example, FileMaker's charts, from the little use that I have used them, they're pretty much tied to, like, the found set. And if that found set is unsorted or so they're great for like preview but not necessarily like real time right there within your interface unless you're really going to maintain a rigid control over the data that's loaded that the graph is dependent on whereas if i could choose to use a web viewer and just display that data and i'm pulling the data through relationships that's probably the method i'm going to opt for because as a developer i know that FileMaker's current state is not going to affect what the graph is actually going to display. Right. And anyone can check me on that wrong because definitely I've not used uh, graphs in FileMaker's graphs enough to say I'm a total expert. But well, I just. Usually on a FileMaker graph, the way I've done it, you. Well, I kind of open in a new window and I usually, uh, you know, using the default method, I'm usually graphing the found set not the related values, but and not just a single value that has related, like a portal, but um, a found set, which can only really change if a user deletes a record from the set. Some other user on the network does that. Now, that that's see, that's good. I wasn't thinking from the standpoint of bringing up a separate window, but most of the time I'm programming a single window solution, primarily because of Windows. Yeah. Well, Win I think Windows I, I, the OS. <laughs> right. Well, when you have a chart... I kind of it's kind of like a report really. True. And uh the way I've done it I've I've got reports and charts in the same module where you can run and all of them are sort of in parallel. You can say, you know, show me um you know, the sales by month chart or the sales by month summary and or in text format. Um and they have the same data and similar structure, and then you can have the you can have them side by side, or maybe even a single one that has a combination, the numbers and the chart on the same page. So, what's your? I need uh, to use more charts. Yeah, it's kind of good. It's it's the FileMaker feature is, you know, it doesn't have crazy bells and whistles, but the stuff that it has works pretty good. Um, I have one big request for it, and that is that if you're if you're using the bar chart and you're and you're graphing a single series. Um, it automatically colorizes all of the bars in different colors to make the chart really colorful, which I don't like. I want them all to be the same color. If you if you have two series, so you're looking at, um, like, for example, sales by month for a year, and you're putting two reps, and so you're seeing, like, you know, John and Mary, and they both have their own bars for January and their own bars for February, and they're next right. to each other, then it, it colors all of John's bars one color and all of Mary's the other, and that's nice. But if you're only looking at sales for all reps combined or just for John, then all the different bars for each of the months is like a, a random color, and it doesn't, I don't know. I don't like it. More visual control. Yep. Oh, there was a, there was a, application that was just like 
the bomb in the fi- uh, Macintosh 9 days called Kaleidoscope that basically just lets you overhaul the whole Macintosh interface. That was the most popular little thing because everybody could make it look however they want. Specific and unique to them. Oh, yeah, and it, was, it had crazy controls of what you could do. Oh, every single thing. <laughs> every single thing. So, uh, on to It's Not FileMaker. It's not FileMaker. It's, it's not. What do you got? What do I have? Yeah. Um, what cool toy. I'll tell you mine. You can think of yours. Okay. I, <laughs> you and I, we both love the iPad. We both love the iOS. Um, I found a really cool app for the iPad called Air Display that turns the iPad into a monitor for my Mac. It also works for the PC. So if I'm packing up with my little bag and I'm going to a meeting, uh, in my little bag, I don't have it yet, but hopefully um, we'll be at someday <laughs> buying an 11-inch uh, MacBook Air. But right now I have a 13-inch MacBook from a couple years ago. Um, I take out the iPad and that and my wireless mouse, and I connect all three devices on the desk. And then now I, uh, the, the iPad I can either run in, in landscape or um, portrait sitting next to the computer. And then I, it's just another monitor. It shows up in the display control panel. And I can put it either on the right or the left from my computer. Um, and it works exactly as though I had another monitor plugged into my computer. It's just not as fast, of course, because it wor- works over Wi-Fi. But it's fast enough that I can actually play movies. And it's perfect for FileMaker because you can have all of your palettes. You can have your info palettes. Now, how are you propping up the your, iPad? And your script debugger. Well, I have the, I have the Apple case which can sit up vertically nicely, or horizontally, either way. Oh, so you're talking uh, in portrait. Yeah, either way. But I think portrait's actually kind of nice, depending upon what you're trying to use it for. Because it's like if you're trying to use uh, Script Debugger and Data Viewer, it's good. Or you could put like your iTunes window over there and have control of all your music. Or I don't know. It's pretty cool. That's the one thing I cannot... I don't know how many of you out there do this, but I applaud you. Those of you who are developers working on a laptop and just using the laptop screen, oh my gosh, I could, I would go insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you have a 27-inch iMac and a, and a, with a 30-inch monitor next to it? Uh, I've got a 30 <laughs> in front of me, and then I've got uh, a 24 to my left and a 24 to my right. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> so um, is that th- two computers or... Th- or? One with no, three? all all one. It's all one uh, on a Mac Pro or something. Eight core, yeah. Okay. Eight so core you, Mac Pro. Okay, so you actually have the Mac Pro with a dual-headed video card plus another video card. We're on top of things. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. I don't even think about those things. In fact, I was looking at the the new uh, the twenty. Uh, what? Yeah, it's a twenty-seven. Apple's not selling their thirty anymore. They're selling a twenty-seven now with a built-in eyesight, and it only uses a mini display connector. Huh. You know, same thing on the laptop. Oh, They're but not the, u- it's not there, DVI. Uh, there's a mini link to dual DVI connector that you can get though. Yeah, but if you don't have if you don't have video cards that have the mini DVI, you can't plug this monitor in unless you get a converter. Oh, well, crazy yeah, but stuff. The, well, but the converter, you mean the mini display port adapter? Yes, for are, like the the video cards that I have cuz mine's a an uh I think it's a mid or late 2008 uh-huh. 8 core. 
And it, the video cards do only have DVI. They do not have the mini DVI. Right, right, right. So I would have to get a converter or a new video card that supports the mini DVI in order to support that newer monitor. Oh, I see what you're talking about. The monitor's input is mini DVI, not DVI. Yeah. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. That pretty much rules it out from being used for a lot of, you know, actually most, I don't know, there's some things about hardware that just amaze me. Not to get too far off track, but most PCs in use where I work have VGA. They don't have DVI. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and for a long time, they would be buying these IBM notebooks that had a DVI port, but it was turned off somehow. And so you'd think, oh, sweet, they got a DVI port. I can plug it into the 24-inch monitor, and it won't look like crap. And I get a DVI cable, and I plug it in, and it doesn't work. <laughs> because, because they saved $2 by ordering it from IBM with that port disabled in software or something. It's like, uh, it just makes me insane. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> disabled so, technology. You're going to yeah. love it. Did you, did you think of your fun toy? I did. You actually saw what my not FileMaker is. I did? It was, my, it was inside my laptop. It is solid state drives. Ah, yes. I will never go back. I'm, I'm running my primary drive on my, uh, my Mac Pro, solid state. My primary drive on my MacBook, solid state. And you go read all of the different reviews about the errors, Pe- the new errors, the 11 and 13, people are loving those. I went into Why? the store and booted one. It boots in like 12 seconds from coal from nothing. <laughs> Why? Because it's using freaking solid state and they've yeah. integrated that stuff like awesome style. And I mean... I, that's the first thing I did. I went to uh, MacSales.com, which is OWC. They have a um, what they call a data doubler, which basically, for a lot of us who have laptops, I just some people they use their CD drives. I never use my CD drive, although the one time when I wanted to put in a movie for my kids, I didn't have it because I used this data doubler. Right. Opened up the Mac, voided the warranty, probably the day I got it, and swapped out the CD drive and put in this data doubler, which holds a solid-state drive, and then kept the original 250 drive in there as well. Right. And then I'm using Time Machine to back up from the solid-state drive onto the regular hard drive. Wow, so, so internally backed-up computer. <laughs> laptop, yeah, MacBook. That's crazy. And it is fast, but more than being fast, the thing never gets hot. Never. I can sit there forever, and maybe it gets slightly warm when watching Hulu. I mean, I've I've been watching Hulu and then also been processing something in the back because another big advantage on the solid state is, you know, read and writes to the disk. It's not having to seek to a place for one thing and then, you know, queuing up for a request for another. It can do that simultaneously. It can hit the disk in multiple points so fast, and it's just, it's, I love it. Never, ever will I go back. <laughs> At least not for not for primary drives. It's hard to tell if you think this is good technology or not. I'm I'm not getting a clear message here. It <laughs> oh, is the way to go. If anybody wants to have a fast computer, as much RAM as you can and solid state. Who was who was it? You and I. You were showing me that drive at uh, at DevCon, and I go, no, it can't be that much faster because I had just gotten a brand new computer. 
with a regular drive, and I wanted to see how much faster the solid state was. So you and I both turned our computers off and booted it, and we were testing it. And somebody was laughing their ass off at us. I remember. <laughs> I forget. <laughs> like, you boys. <laughs> anyway, so uh, let's get on to our topic. All right. Let's do it. Let's talk about managing errors. It's like MacBook errors? No, 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 no. Oh, errors. errors. <laughs> this is the non-sexy part of FileMaker, but this is the part that if you if you handle it and deal with it well, it reduces so much stress because it's those people who call or contact you with a customer support issue and say, I click the button, it doesn't work. Okay. Can you give me more details? Which button? Where were you at? What else was running? What did you try to run? No, it's just, I click the button, it doesn't work. Right. <laughs> you're like, you're kidding me. This is all you're going to give me? Yeah. And you're sitting there with the email, and then you've got to email them back, and then it's a couple days later, and then you've got these people that are just completely mad at you. Why can't you just fix it? Well, because I don't know what the problem was. Well, FileMaker has pretty basic error trapping. I mean, nothing like you find in things, languages like Java. I mean, it's basically get last error. And it used to be that you had to actually, right after any script step would run, you had to use that get last error because it would reset on the very next step. But now I, I don't know when the change happened. At least it does preserve the error, I believe, until a new error is hit or a new script is called that could potentially generate a new step. Right. So like if it's an end if or if it's a comment, it's not going to reset it. But right. a lot of people don't do this. I mean, how do you manage error trapping? Well, um, I'm embarrassed to say that mostly what I do is I program um, to avoid them. Which maybe sounds stupid and snide, but I guess I've been doing it long enough that I know I, I've done error trapping really carefully in some applications that I've built. And I've kind of learned when you really have errors, um, like if you forget to change modes or if you've got – if you try to do something that requires that a, uh, the found set be something other than zero – and you have a found set that's got zero records, and you do something and it doesn't work, like setting a related value or something like that. So instead, I, I sort of program defensively to not uh, to automatically avoid those states, just because I kind of know. Do you have a, a large number of varying privilege sets with different degrees of uh, read-write access? Mm, some, not a lot. I, that's I guess usually really, when you get into yeah. the most, the biggest number of issues. But the, the really big ones that I do, so there are definitely some places where there's a really big thing that happens, like central scripts that create a new record or places where users have reported that the things don't work correctly. And in those places, I'll, I'll do all kinds of error trapping um, and look to see if there's an error of certain state. Uh, sometimes I'll just log the error. So if I'll, I'll say get last error and if it's such and such, I'll silently make a log record that says, oh yeah, an error was encountered here. And uh, and then have the script sort of silently go on and and try to recover or go its way. Um, well, that's exactly what I'm doing, and that's the I I just did an article that I'll probably it may be released by the time this uh, podcast came out. It may be a little bit later, but um, 
the issue I was having with errors, and one thing I found out is coding this Theme Studio product, you know, it's it's going out standalone, so it's not like a server setup where your your environment's a little bit more controlled, at least in terms of the machine that may be doing things. You know that if the server's going to do import and exports, that's the one place where you can actually troubleshoot. But if you're doing things on the client side, maybe it's exporting from a uh, the contents of a container to a particular folder on that user's machine. That could mm-hmm. potentially fail based yeah. on permissions. Um, you want to air trap those things because each different user may have a completely different environment. In my case, this Theme Studio product, you know, it's working for everybody who runs a Mac, everybody who runs a window, and I have no idea about their environment. Yeah, see, for that setup, where you've also got a lot of importing and exporting and a lot of other stuff going on, you have a very different challenge than what I have. I'm deploying an application on Citrix, right? A totally known, consistent environment. So the, oh, the, the range yeah. of errors that I'm going to experience are really the only kind of errors that I'm caring about are going to be record locking and and things that are related to a multi-user type system. Well, yeah. I mean, if your predominant deployment is Citrix, error trapping and every, all of that stuff, that's pretty much solved. Right. Because the Citrix environment is the machine that's running FileMaker, and that's it. Yep. But if you're using standard FileMaker and you're doing things that happen on the desktop side, you know, just standard FileMaker over the LAN, that's when you come across different issues. But what I found out was, in the course of doing this, a lot of people probably, at least people starting out with FileMaker and probably your intermediate developers, I, some of your more advanced, and I would hope that firms like Soliant, Excelsis, and, and other companies of that uh, nature would have some type of standardized, okay, here's how we're going to handle or manage errors so that we can actually provide really good solutions. Because there's multiple different error points in a FileMaker solution. It's not just a FileMaker error. You also have potential custom function errors. There's a very uh, popular custom function called Custom List from Agnes Barreau, which it generates its own errors. You have your own internal application errors, which were, are based on your application is expected to perform this way, but let's say it doesn't for some reason. You're going to throw your own errors. And then you also have plugins. If you're integrating plugins, you're going to have your own plugin errors. So you've got four different classes of errors there. Hmm. And so what I ended up creating is typically you want to, from the standpoint of errors, you want something that's sort of universal to your whole solution that can be easily modified. So what I create is I create a a couple of different custom functions. I have three, in fact. The first one is just simply called error, and it's a convenience function. And I'll explain it after I say the other two. The next one is called error string, and this one is super, super basic. All you do is you go to FileMaker Help, get a list of all the error codes, copy all the the error codes, and the inbound parameter is just the number. So that you you map... FileMaker's name for the error. This gives you the opportunity to rename it if you want something that's a little bit more human-readable than what FileMaker tells you. Right, so if you get error 407, you can say, oh yeah, that's this. Correct. And then the third of these three custom functions is called error data. And error data basically is a utility custom function that allows you to shove let's call it packed variables, where you're going to expand all of these variables later in the error process and then be able to just simply read or populate all of those into the error log table. 
And this can be anything from the open record modification count, um, the current layout that the user is on, mm-hmm. the, uh, the layout table, if there's an active field, and then any right. other variables that you may be using for your solution. So yeah, you're going to the shove environmental stuff, right? So that you can, so that for troubleshooting purposes. Correct. And you're going to shove all of those into this error data custom function. And what I do is I simply just use a list. I use a list, and then I cr- and the, the return delimited list, all it is is the internal portion of a let statement. So I have dollar sign error, and then there are these classes of these error variables, and I consider them reserved for the whole solution. So error is just whether or not one happened. Error num, which is short for error number, is mm-hmm. whatever number is generated. You're either going to have FileMaker's automatic errors, or you're going to supply your own, which I suggest using negative values, because FileMaker seems to be going in a positive direction, or a value that's so high that you really don't suspect FileMaker will hit it. Got it. Then you have error string, which is the actual, just the name of what FileMaker passes back. You know, no, the record, your privileges don't allow you to write this record, or the found set is zero. So you're saying that in addition to if you experience a regular FileMaker error, you're, you're suggesting that you set up your own set of errors with a range of numbers. So like negative 1,000 to negative 2,000 or whatever. And those are your personal errors, your, your errors for your solution, so that you can, look at, you can look at a log of errors that are both FileMaker and your solution specific? Yes, if okay. you need to. In fact, my, my error table, it basically, um, the next variable, is you've got error, error num, error string, and I should have mentioned it before, error string, is error type. So basically, the error custom function is going to use FileMaker's get last error and it's going to set a variable called error type to FMP. Now, when I pull this this error custom function, it has a return delimited list of all these variables. I can then append any other variable after what it's returned in order to be an override. So if it's an application error, I just set error type equals app. And that's going to override the previously set error type variable that was defaulted to FileMaker or to FMP. Mm-hmm. So I can do that for a plugin. I can do that for a custom list. I can do that for uh, anything else. And then there's a few other extra variables which control action within the script. For example, error halt and error dialog, both of which are, are booleans, which are if you want to halt, pass it a true, otherwise pass it a false. Hmm. If you want to show a dialog, its error dialog is either true or it's false in terms of whether you want to show a dialog. Because in some of your scripts, your script uh, branching, you want to continue on through even though it may, the error may have happened. But then other scripts that you create, there's may, there may be no sense in continuing on, so you need to halt with that. So you need those options. And this is all bundled and controlled within one script called handle error. And when it gets into handle error, it sees all of these different parts. Error, whether it happened or not. Error num, whether it's your own supplied number or whether it's a FileMaker supplied number. Error string, which is the message that the dialog could potentially show. Error type, whether it's a FileMaker error, application error, plugin, or a custom function. Hmm. So uh, then what you do dialog, when you're, et cetera. So when you're programming then, you just put, you just call this handle error script everywhere? And then you send the script some parameters, like if there's an error here, then I want you to halt 
but don't, but don't display a message. If there's an error here, I want you to halt and display a message, etc. Well, remember that the error custom function, mm-hmm. that is the convenience function. So basically all I do is, and I only put it on, on scripts that I know will definitely potentially uh, create an error. Mm-hmm. I mean, not everywhere, because of course, anytime that you call a new record or a set field, if the user doesn't have permissions, think of all the set fields that you have in your solution. You could put this handle error after every set field, and my gosh, you'd get a comprehensive picture, but you sort of have to be choosy of where you're going to put it. Yeah, You're going to put it on things that are critical, things that you know that uh, problems could happen. And basically what you do is you... It's exactly correct. Rather than using the get last error just after, let's say it's a new record step and it's critical in terms of creating a new customer. Mm-hmm. If you put this right after the new record on your create new customer script and you call this handle error perform script, you pass it the custom function of error, which automatically takes and assumes it's a FileMaker error. If it was a call to a plugin that you had just initialized by using a set variable and called the plugin function, right. you would write in the error type and override it as plugin and get the, the error that the plugin itself generates and just pass this to this handler script. The handler script is then what takes over. And it decides based on whatever you put into that. And it's all controlled based on those variables. Whether it's going to show the dialog, whether it's going to halt or not, it's in it. It's from that handle error script that you can then branch out and do whatever else you want. But it's now pervasively throughout your whole application. There's only two points that you have to edit: the error custom function and the handle error script, because everywhere else in your whole solution, that's what you call after any time that you think an error could happen. And you now have universal control in your whole solution in order to handle all of these errors. And I log them to a table, and it has been immensely invaluable for working with this particular product, seeing all of the different things. I can see when people are running Snow Leopard versus Leopard based on the the system, all kinds of stuff that really, really makes it helpful. And you, you actually get this nice picture. You can see sort of which users tend to have more problems and you can isolate, okay, is this a localized issue or is this something specific to my solution that there's a problem? Mm-hmm. And it's been very, very valuable. See, I've got an article coming out about it on the magazine. That's yep. why it's been so fresh in my head lately. And it's exactly for stuff like this that you do that, that I keep the subscription to the magazine and why I recommend it. Because <laughs> the sample files and the videos are so great to explain stuff like that. Of course, you're going to be rehashing all this for your video, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, it's rehash, but they've got all the different functions that they can just directly copy from. And um, there's a really nice little trick that I have in there with regards to populating the log. Uh, you've heard of the the method of just populating a locally scoped variable and then putting that as the auto enter value for when you create a new record, mm-hmm. correct? I took it one step further where I was so lazy that I created a custom function called get field name as variable. So basically, this one custom function, which is the auto enter value for any field, uses the self function to pass the name of that field as a reference to this custom function to use the get field in order to grab the corresponding named variable. So I don't even, I'm so lazy, I Boy, don't even that's have... that's so <laughs> circuitous. I, I'm trying to, I, I got almost all the way through that. 
<laughs> okay, well, think about, think about it this way, okay? The self function returns the name of what the field is. Um, or it, it, turns, it returns... Or the value the, of the field depends on where you are. It returns the data. But if you use the get field function... Right. You can get the name of the field. That's right. And so what this does is it just prevents me from having to go into the auto-enter. All I have to do is duplicate the field and change the name of the field. And it uses the actual name of the field in order to auto-enter a corresponding locally scoped variable. Hmm. Without having to go in and actually explicitly say, get this locally scoped variable. It just uses this one custom function, and it looks at whether or not this particular field name has a corresponding named global var- local variable. Boy, that's... <laughs> it's lazy. That's, uh, it's lazy, but it's also all the way down the rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is ultimately lazy. So, I mean, I did that because I was adding so many fields to the log. I was like, I keep clicking this, and I hate the fact that you have to go into like dialogue after dialogue after dialogue it's like the filemaker way and so i just said okay i just i just want to be able to duplicate the field and just rename it and that will automatically grab the variable for me <laughs> and and it works yeah i don't like having logs with lots of fields personally i like having um lots of records because record count doesn't hurt you but field count kind of does in a log table hmm well, then you'd have to do your post-processing. Well, you I have mean, a... So the log would say, what's the field name and what was the value, or what is the value? And, and a really, really good log would have a before value and an after value. So something like FM Data Guard will do that. Well, that's an audit log as opposed right. to some just a general log. Yeah, a general log or an error log. Or the way I call them, I call them machine-readable and human-readable. So uh, FM Data Guard is a machine-readable log that you can use to roll forward and roll back. Right. But a... But a human-readable or a just a general log will have nice English descriptions of what you did. So you might actually pass a little sentence, you know, on such and such day, user deleted a contact. And here's so you, the information that was the contact's name. So you opt for, because of performance, the machine-readable logs for well, storing. I both, actually. I have, I have two parallel logs in the main in, in, uh, the Orpheus system that I'm using for... Uh, Oregon Public Health that, that I've been working on almost every day for three years. <laughs> um, because I want one of them to be able to be a, a... Users can go look at a tab and say, what has happened with this particular record? And they can see who's accessed it, who's edited it, um, who's deleted access, you know, certain fields from it. Uh, and there's certain fields that are really important. And so for those fields, I'll actually write, oh yeah, on such and such day, the... the status for this case changed from this to that and here's who did it you know that kind of a thing dude isn't that that just feels so awesome when you just you know every little thing that happens and you can just track it and you can see and it's just yeah. so reassuring it saves a huge amount of time and that's actually i guess the reason i don't do that much error trapping is because i do a lot of this log tracking it's kind of the same you know, because if there's any kind of an error, well, actually, in a lot of cases, it, it, I'm actually am tracking for an error, and then if there's an error, I write a log record, and then it's there. And then, of course, the other thing is the log has to be totally um, uneditable, so no users can see it. So there's really only two or three users who can go into that table and uh, and delete anything from it. So it's it's in its own file, 
and the rights to that file are different than the main data file. Aha. Uh -huh. Which is, again, you know, medical data, you kind of want to have the extra hoops to jump through. I wouldn't recommend that for most solutions. Nice. So, what so other, that's what I had. What other, any other uh, really good tips from error tracking? That's a really bad English word, error, because you just want to say error. Error. Um, <laughs> oh, I've, there's probably little things in there that I have forgotten about. But, uh, I mean, that's the, that's the bulk of it is you, you just want to use essentially one table to track it, one script that is called, and, you know, a couple custom functions for convenience in terms of capturing the environment to pass to the log and then you've got a really robust logging system and it's when you think about it from that standpoint you know it's a hassle to put in it's non-sexy it's not fun you're like why would I want to you know I just want to code the meat and I want to get the thing done but when you have the this log of these errors and you can see where your your solution is falling down it's just really helpful well it reflects a cold reality when you're developing something you don't experience errors no, because you're you fully in control of the environment. Yep, in, yeah, but if you, when you deploy it, especially if you deploy it to a varied environment, like um, like the solution you're working on, um, like Theme Studio, you really need to have a lot of this stuff to, to track it. So what's your general opinion? I've talked to some developers who um, lament the fact that maybe, maybe the majority of FileMaker solutions don't do any error tracking at all. They don't. I mean, it's. I've been thinking about this a lot. It's the reason that I started um, FileMakerStandards.org. Their FileMaker, the nature of FileMaker, and uh, sorry for those of you out there that are not doing a lot of the commenting on your code and the error <laughs> logging and stuff like that. There are a lot of sloppy FileMaker developers, and they're creating a bunch of spaghetti go, uh, code, and it's the bane of FileMaker's existence where one developer goes in and they're just like, oh my gosh, I have to work with another FileMaker developer solution. <laughs> and so I'm thinking, you know, if some people will follow some certain standards, get off their high horse in terms of considering their own standards like the Holy Grail. And we talked about this at pause. And so I like, I gave up on some of my standards. I'm like, okay, fine, I'll adopt, you know, what you're doing. And there's there's two or three guys. In fact, there's a guy that's in the Oregon area up there by you that's mm -hmm. um, pretty yeah, proactive Aaron, Aaron on Smith. He presented a little bit at last night's FM Pug meeting on FileMaker standards. Yeah, and I am I am just really enjoying my time collaborating with these guys. It's a really powerful wiki that we're using. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think that, okay... If I code my solution against these standards and these standards that I have on this wiki, they're fully documented. There's a couple other people that are using them. I could pass anybody this solution and say, okay, the way that this works, if there's something you don't understand, just go over here and it's all documented. Yep. You know, I have to say, uh, as a result of reading through and commenting and contributing to a lot of the standards on that site, there's a few things I've already changed about the way I'm developing. Because I Me think too. that if we if we work more towards a single set of standards, if more developers do that, then it is going to, you know, the, the one big solution is it's going to make different solutions from different developers work more alike, and it's going gonna, it's gonna, to, you know, greatly increase uh, developers working with each other, which is good. It'll make it much easier to hire subcontractors and... Well, I mean, just from... from I mean, working with uh, other people, like, for example, one of the things that... Um, Perrin had suggested on the site was 
um, I forget what he originally called it. I, I renamed it, and I hope he didn't get it, you know, upset at that, but I, it was called a low-impact startup, something I had no idea of. And it's been a problem that we've always had from a security standpoint with FileMaker is they didn't change it until 11, but the ability to create a file and then point to using an external data reference to another file gave you, even if it was a limited level of access, gave you access to you know everything that that file had access to. That is, well, if you got hold of the file. There's I mean, limited... It, it gave you um, – you couldn't see records that you didn't otherwise have access to or or layouts or tables if those were locked. But you did have access potentially to the table that, that actually allowed you to control those things. So, for example, if you used security like you have a, a, a global user ID and that looked up something in a table – um, then you could actually potentially change that global value if you really, really were a good hacker, and then thus un, you know, unlock yourself and give yourself a different level of access. But of course, that's been locked down in 11. Now you can, um, now you can uh, check a box uh, right. in your 11 solution to say that no other database can connect, is authorized to make a external reference to this file, to my main data file. Right. Which is well, his, good. Be- his best practice was something that I just didn't even think of. And it's basically creating an empty table called startup, creating a correspondingly named layout. Well, y- we didn't specify that you had to call it startup, but I call uh-huh. my table with no fields and nothing called startup. And I create a field with nothing on it, and it's associated to that table occurrence called startup, just mm-hmm. this isolated table occurrence. And then that's specified as the startup layout in the file options. Sure. So it's your script that's going to take full control, and if anybody ever was able to get that file open, what they get on startup is nothing. And it's also beneficial from a network performance standpoint, because the script is you're you're able to determine, okay, are they using Go or are they using standard FileMaker? So then you can decide, you know, I'm going to go to this layout, which is optimized for mobile versus, you know, just starting up on a layout that has relationships to everything else. And so I called it low impact startup. And that's a a best practice that I picked up and I immediately stuck it into my file, into the technique files. And I never would have got that if I wasn't collaborating with these guys on this wiki. I've been doing that for security for a while. I didn't really think about all the ramifications, but uh, I also think it's a really good idea when you're creating a new database that that layout be the very first thing that you do so that it's the it's the native default of the file. Yep. And, yeah, usually I call that layout like login or splash. It's the splash screen layout. It It is definitely low impact in terms of security, no access yep. enhancement there, plus the network. I was just – it was awesome. But I have one more tip. Bring it. I know we're done. Yeah, we're coming up on this. You'll probably relate to this. You're you're creating a FileMaker solution. You evolve as a developer, and then you know that there are scripts that are just now deprecated. They're just not used at all. Mm-hmm. What's a good way to find out how they're used in order to get rid of them? Um, well, if you if no button on the layout calls that script and no other script calls that script, then I use base elements to, re- to get a list of unreferenced objects. And then those scripts will show up as not being called by anything. And then I know I can safely delete them. So, of course, that's a perfect way. If I used base <laughs> elements, I would have known how to do that. If I used inspector, see, I usually Inspector's use... Same deal. So what do you do? What's your, what's your tip? I just, I, you know, I'll 
print the report and I'll find out whether there's any references to that script, but I, again, I like to take the lazy way. I decided, why can't I just notify myself if these scripts are even used throughout the course of time? So I wrote a, I just write a little custom function that basically just does a get script name, and I put that as the exit step on the end of any suspected deprecated script. And then I write that at the very end, and part of the shutdown script basically says, you know, if it's not empty, go ahead and show me. So that way, throughout the course of my use and testing, and for anybody else that's using it, testing it, I would basically send myself an email of that log. It's just logging that script name to see if it's used. And over the course of time, if it's not used, then I just, I know I'm totally safe to delete them. And I shove them into a... Uh, you know, deprecated folder yep. within the, the list of scripts. I love that. And I have to add on one other thing, which uses um, Google um, Analytics for the exact same purpose for layouts. Yep. Put a one pixel by one pixel web viewer on every layout, um, not every layout except for find layouts. And, um, and if you put it on a list layout, put it in the header, not in the body. <laughs> um, and that one pixel... <laughs> object would would, uh, would send the layout name to a um, and call a web page and that, and um, so for example you'd set up a website that would have a, a HTML file which would be blank except for the code Tracking that you code. get from Google Analytics yep and so if you have a layout in your solution called customer entry you'd make a file on your website called customer entry.html um, and then anytime anybody goes to that layout, silently and instantly um, tracks that a user has accessed that layout on such and such date and time and how long they were on the layout, what their operating system was, what their system resolution was, what their color depth, all the other crap that you normally get for a web for web tracking, you can now track. But you can't see who the user was, um, stuff like that. You can also see where they were in the country. So like if you make a demo file, you can distribute it and see how many people are actually using it. Actually, you want to know... You can track. <laughs> you can track the who it was. Google, and yeah, other Google specifically does not want you to do that. Well, I know that they don't want you yeah. to, but you can. Well, the, you just yeah, pass it as a parameter in the URL that's used that you go to. Right, you and, could do that, Google but yeah, Google Analytics the, really doesn't up. want you to be getting user-specific data from that. That's not what that feature's for. Yeah. So I, I just well, I'm just do letting it. you know. I mean, there are situations where you want to do that. For example, there are organizations when they deploy FileMaker, what they use the old uh, get username for with the setting that you could control. You can control it still manually in the preferences. They would use that for um, floors and departments, floors and department codes. Huh. And so you would tack on the floor and department code as a token onto the URL that's hit, and that gets shoved into your uh, Google Analytics. I think we have to talk more often so that we don't talk so long. <laughs> <laughs> Although this has been excellent. It, it, lots of good tips. So Thanks very much for talking to me, Matt. Hey, thanks for calling. I love it when we get to talk. All right. Have All fun. right. See ya.